0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Anonymous, WikiLeaks, the Syrian Electronic Army, Edward Snowden, Bitcoin, the Arab Spring. In every aspect of international affairs, digitally enabled actors are changing the way the world works and disrupting the institutions that once held a monopoly on power. In his book, Disruptive Power, The Crisis of the State in the Digital Age, Taylor Owen asks, how does the rise of hackers, digital humanitarians, cyber activism, automated violence, and citizen journalists change the way we understand and act in the world? Are digital diplomacy and cyber war the future of statecraft or a sign of the crisis of the state? And what new institutions will be needed to moderate emerging power structures and ensure accountability in the rule of law? Taylor Owen is Assistant Professor of Digital Media and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia and a Senior Fellow at the Columbia Journalism School. Welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So I'd like to start with, um, as you wrote in a recent uh, piece, uh, January 28, 2011. I'll just quote the opening sentence here. Gripping in the middle of a popular uprising, the president of Egypt turned off the Internet. Striking display of state power is well known. Less well known is how the internet was turned back on. This illustrates illustrates some of the principles you're you're talking about. Uh, So, how was the internet turned back on?
1: Well, I mean, in in sort of a remarkable way, a whole new layer of actors uh, who are spread out throughout the Arab Spring. Kind of provided a decentralized i t support for activists and protesters, and in the case of Syria for the the revolutionary forces so in in Egypt, uh, a group is a group called Telecomics, which is is kind of like anonymous it 's a decentralized network of hackers and activists based around the world who who decided to try and find ways to open up communication channels inside Cairo. So I mean, what's kind of what's interesting about them is, is one they were spread out around the world they were a decentralized network mostly functioning and functioning anonymously um but the things they did were pretty creative i mean they did things like set up fax, fax machines around the city so people could communicate each other from fax machine to fax machine they they built a network of um, radio enthusiasts who built a, a network of radios to communicate with each other they um, allowed for people to use stations around the city to communicate out to people in their networks around the world who could then post their comments to chat rooms to get news out to the world. So they, they really just served as a sort of alternative IT support system inside the Arab Spring in a way that I think the centralized authority that, that turned off the Internet originally would never have expected.
0: And as you write, um, these groups are formless. You can't join them. You can't lead them. Yeah. Um, you, you can participate. That's that's what you can do, yeah. and therefore, it's it's very unlike uh, you know government,
1: absolutely, or, or any real twentieth hierarch- century hierarchical institution, which which I think is the common actor when you look at these. And part of what the book was trying to do is look at these organizations, like telecomics or these networks, or actors like telecomics across different spaces of the international system, whether it be the trade and finance space with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies or the journalism space with all these new digital journalism networks that are emerging and citizen journalism networks. Whoever they may be across these different spaces, they, they they all look and function in a very different way than traditional hierarchical command and control institutions that have really dominated the international system for the last 100 years. And it's in these attributes, I think, that we really start to see their both their, their, why they're effective now, but also, I think more importantly, why, why they pose a, such a threat to these traditional institutions.:
0: uh, So uh, remind us of the, the disruption theory. This, is, this mm. is a theory that's used often in business. You're applying this to, to these new I guess, you can't really I guess you call them groups, but these kind of sort of formless yeah. uh, organizations and vis-a-vis the state.
1: Yeah. So, disruption theory is, in some ways, a one of the most sort of cloying, overused buzzwords in Silicon Valley, right? Like every, every startup is trying in Silicon Valley is trying to disrupt uh, something, whether it be the car industry or whatever it might be, right? And, um, the, but the core of it, it comes from a theory developed by um, Clay Christensen, a Harvard professor, um, a business professor, who who basically says that um, incumbent actors in the business world become very good at doing certain things, and they build their entire structures of their institutions around delivering a very particular service or product. And this leaves them blind to to small, nimble innovators sitting outside of their worldview that can end up building new markets and new technologies that can ultimately replace them. And and in, and these these out these nimble outside actors and and companies in the business case um, function and operate and engage with the people who use their products or their services in fundamentally different ways than those traditional institutions or those traditional companies. And so. Uh, What I think, how we think, we can apply this to the international space is that when you, when you look across these different spaces and you see all of these digitally enabled individuals and groups and and networks, um, I think they're 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 empowered by a set of attributes that really don't fit that sit outside of the way we've traditionally thought of power in these traditional institutions. So like you mentioned they're formless. They don't they don't have leaders. And we know that in traditional institutions we there's always leadership. In fact, there's hierarchies of leadership, right? There's there's strict le- layers of organization and none of that exists. These networks are flat. They're anonymous. So people who work who Function within these these networks function uh, act anonymously, and again that inside these traditional institutions is anathema there 's no, you, 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 everyone has to have identity inside governments that 's how we hold them responsible um, All of the evolution within these organizations is very rapid. Um, so they, they they function very well in this in this sort of nebulous world online where things move and information flows very freely, and again this is this is really un- makes traditional institutions very uncomfortable institutions that need um, knowledge of the future to for long term planning um, and and need to know know about the world around them that that's not the case with these organizations um, and they also they're they're fundamentally collaborative and they show that um, that. They collective action. This is probably the key to it: is they show collective action is possible um, without a hierarchical structure. Hmm. And this and and this just fundamentally isn't the case with these traditional hierarchical institutions. So I think we have this point where there's this new form of, and what I'm calling disruptive power. Other people have called um, new power. Or, um, what, what people are really getting at, I think, is non-hierarchical control, command and control power in institutions. Uh, this new form of organization that I think. Um, in some critical ways, threatens those powers that that controlled all of these different spaces in the international system for the 20th century.
0: And if you if you take this the theory of disruption to its yeah. conclusion, as you write in this article, when Tesla disrupts Ford, we end up with better cars, and perhaps Ford goes bankrupt. And uh, but uh, you know, apart from those employed by Ford, we, we all benefit. But the government can't go bankrupt.
1: That's it. I mean, and 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 they shouldn't. But governments serve different purposes, right? We build governments to, at their core, provide collective social goods. But but I, I, and and so so we need them to be able to adapt to this new world in order to continue to provide that core collective service that we don't think generally, either the free market or individuals acting in collaboration with each other can can provide. Um, the problem is, is that they're that they're encumbered and they're in some way, limited and threatened by the exact same things that those companies are. Um, The rigidity of their structure, in many cases the waste and the lethargy and the slow evolution and the the lack of embracing of new forms of organization. All the things that threaten those big companies also threaten these states. And so, I think what we're we're starting to see is instead of adapting, these states are seeking to control this digital space and this is this is sort of a, where ultimately I think this argument ends or or, or it, where we are now is that the state states and governments see the power of these decentralized actors more and more, whether they be what we would perceive as positive actors or negative actors in the digital space and and our and their response instead of adapting to become um an efficient and effective actor in that world using that kind of power are exerting their old form of power and are seeking to control the Internet. And that's why we get the rise of of the types of surveillance systems we're seeing, the way the states are fighting back against digital activists and a whole host of other, I think, quite aggressive pushbacks from governments against the actors who are empowered in this world.
0: And what some would call overreach or, uh, you know, overaggressive pushback, uh, I guess that comes out of... Fear on the part of governments. I
1: I I think so. I mean, and it, it's interesting because when I started this this project a couple of years ago, it really was a was grounded in um, in a, a whole host of what I saw as positive uses of technology in the international space, um, whether it be crisis mappers and digital humanitarians helping aid workers in Haiti or. Really interesting Bitcoin and cryptocurrency communities that were helping get people get money to to people around the world, or digital, or journalism, where I was working at a journalism school at the time, and we were really focusing on all the new ways um, citizens could become journalists and, in, in, in many ways, do journalism better than the traditional institutions. And so these were all sort of very I saw as very positive attributes, um, and and. And the project was really trying to document what makes them unique and potentially what makes them powerful. Um, but then in, in two years ago, almost two years ago now, we got the Snowden leaks. And I think what, what, we, what we really saw in those leaks is what you're alluding to, is just this, the level of, of fear and concern and really aggressive pushback that, that Western um, particular Western democratic states were facing. And I mean, it's in the it's in the very sort of mandate of their what they call their collection posture within within the, particularly the Five Eyes intelligence group that is a surveillance network of five Western democratic countries, which is to collect it all, process it all, exploit it all, partner it all, know it all. Right? That's their goal, and I think I think that that mentality stems from this idea that in order to defeat an enemy, you have to know everything about them. Sort of traditional battlefield intelligence ideas that the more you know about an enemy or a space in which the enemy is operating, the, the easier it will be to defeat them. And, and I, I just, I Don't think that works particularly well in, in the online world for a host of different reasons we can talk about. But I do think it represents exactly what you, what you mentioned, which is just this, this this overreach and this, which I think is symbolic of, of a real fear of this space.
0: I wonder if you could follow up there. Um, you know, yeah. why why can't we know everything? That's that's heard the strength of the of the new digital world.
1: Why can't we know everything about? Uh, yeah, why yeah. can't states mm-hmm. know everything yeah. about that mm-hmm. world? Well I mean it, the main thing is that the is just the the amount of information. I mean we know that um when you think of the just the scale of the data collection efforts that we now know about what governments are initiating it's just remarkable. I mean things like um all of the data coming in and out crossing oceans through these big data cables are getting sucked up and stored. Um we're pulling data out of um out of sat between satellite intercepting data between satellite communications um, data between s- cell towers in cities, We're collecting all that we have all the f- phone records through normal normal cable and cell lines, um, and increasingly we have a whole Internet of Things network that's collecting more and more data. Inside Google cars, for example, collect two gigabytes of data a second about the world around them. Um, we increasingly have devices in our home that are collecting data. We have networks of CCTV cameras around cities that are now being networked together and data stored that they're collecting. So we just have this huge amount of data that is, in many ways, building this a model of the world, an almost real-time model of the world. And, and no human system can bring meaning to that data. It's not like knowing the movement of an enemy inside on, a, on a battlefield where a human can can process it and understand it. That doesn't exist in this space. So, so instead, what governments have done and is knowing this is they they're really turning to more automated systems to make sense of this world. They're using complex algorithms, uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, natural language processing. All these these tools that are emerging to make sense of, of large, ever, ever always changing and evolving data sets, um, which. Which I think is problematic as well, and because of these, these systems are, are in many ways um, uh, unknowable. These, these algorithms are incredibly complex. They're constantly evolving with these new flows of data coming into them. Um, and I'm, I'm not quite sure how, as a society, or right? I'm, I'm sure we haven't as a society discussed anyway, how, how we're going to hold these automated governance systems to account, which is increasingly the direction. Um, governments and established powers are going to make sense of this world because as humans we just we just can't we just can't process this amount of data so so the states it, it, they put themselves in a real bind I think they've they've uh, decided to um, collect a huge amount of information and store a huge amount of information about the way people communicate the way um, people act and behave in the world the way people we people are in many ways, and this data represents um, us. It represents the societies that these govern these governments um, govern. Uh, but they're doing so, and they're trying to pull meaning out of these systems in a way that I don't think um, stay true to the bargain we've entered into with states, which is um, we give them a, a significant amount. We we as citizens give states a significant amount of power in exchange for a degree of accountability. Um, and degree of of transparency in how they operate. And I think that's getting lost in this move towards automation and algorithmic governance.
0: As we go along here, we'll uh, talk about uh, recommendations Mm. for restoring that balance, which we can Mm. get into. Uh, It occurs to me that uh, if if we think the government just can't get it, no one can get their arms around this this, this huge amount of data, uh, could that not... Reassure us <laughs> in a weird way. Gover- no one can. Government can't. Maybe we should be worried less. I don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting argument, and and something a lot. Some sort of big data, open transparency type movement. People would, would probably argue, right, is that with this flood of data, if no one can actually make sense of it in real time, then it's not a huge danger. the The flip side of that, though, is that um, that Some of the risk of huge of these large data collection efforts and data storage efforts increasingly aren't necessarily real time understanding and meaning being pulled out of them. So it's not um, someone flagging you doing something illegal in real time and you being arrested. But it's more, I think, um, what it means to be storing this huge amount of data about society, about a free and open society um, in the long term. Um, one can imagine, and we 've already seen cases um, presently where um, uh, one's digital records are opened up inside a legal proceeding or prosecution of some sort, and someone can find say a connection between say one's a journalist and they 've spoken to people who might be on might be flagged or under suspicion in some ways, and then that person's digital history is used against them um, in often quite pernicious ways so it I, I think that to me is more <clears> the <throat> excuse me, the long term fear of this is that what does it mean as a society to be collecting um, data about our movements, our communications, our behaviors, our actions in the long term? And does that ultimately then change our behavior? Um, as as presumably free citizens, and I, and I think the evidence is that we see that it does. I mean, we see already activists and journalists um, are beginning to change the way they behave and the way they, they, they act in society under the pretense that they, they know their, their data about them is being stored and can be used against them. Hmm. And, and that, to me, is a real challenge to, to, to what it means to be a legitimate and, and democratic government um, in, in this digital space.
0: Let's take a break. When we come back more with Taylor Owen, his uh, new book, very interesting, Disruptive Power, The Crisis of the State in the Digital Age. And uh, when we come back, I want to uh, get into another article Taylor Owen wrote with this provocative headline, Why the U.S. Should but Won't Partner with Hacktivist Anonymous. This gets us into sort of the eye of the beholder. Um, you have, you have these These anonymous actors can do a lot of good and especially and including from the point of view of the government uh, so we'll talk about that and much more uh, Taylor Owen also writes about um, how di- uh, digital uh, age is affecting humanitarian work uh, automated warfare journalism we'll talk about it all coming following the break
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Uinta County Library's Regional History Center, supporting people of all ages in their quest to learn, grow, and discover. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto Casper. This week we're taking on the 4th of July with a handful of favorites. Mario Batali, Claudia Roden, Sally Schneider, and an interview with Julia Child from our very first national broadcast 20 years ago this weekend. That's The Splendid Table, the show about life's appetites from 8 p.m. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible by our members and VTV Channel 6, serving the Uinta Basin with commercial advertising solutions, including customizable advertising packages, combining TV, cinema, and the web. Information is at vtvchannel6.com.
0: Thanks for joining me for Access Utime, Tom Williams, and my guest today is Taylor Owen, who's assistant professor of digital media and global affairs at the University of British Columbia. He's a senior fellow at the Columbia Journalism School. His new book is Disruptive Power: The Crisis of the State in the Digital Age. In every aspect of international affairs, he says digitally enabled actors are changing the way the world works and disrupting the institutions that once held a monopoly. On power, one of his uh, key questions How does the rise of hackers, digital humanitarian cyber activism, automated violence, and citizen journalists change the way we understand and act in the world? You're welcome to join the conversation. Hope that you will if you have a question or comment. The number toll-free is 1-800-826-1495. I'll repeat that, 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us by email to upraxess at gmail.com, upraxess at gmail.com. We're on Twitter as well, at Utah Public Radio. So, uh, Taylor Owen, I was very interested to read this this article um, on how anonymous – is combating the Islamic State. I, I didn't know this. That uh, Of course, we know that the Islamic State is very up on the latest digital technology, and uh, there, there's a lot of Twitter accounts, and they're putting a lot out and recruiting jihadists uh, to go, but uh, apparently Anonymous is, is combating this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, in some ways, they've been quite effective at trying to take down and hack into um, accounts that are promoting a whole range of ISIS propaganda um and and it's interesting because i think in, in some ways they're they're able to, because they more match the the capabilities and the structures and the organization of these decentralized networks that ultimately um these terrorist organizations are they're, they're able to sort of play and exist in their in their domain in a more effective way than governments and the problem, though, is that I, I mean, ultimately, that the things you would have to do as a government to shut down—I mean, you, you constantly hear that why can't the government just turn off these Twitter accounts? I mean, there's tens of thousands of them of these Twitter accounts that ISIL is using to to uh, to disseminate both their acts of violence and their and their rhetoric and ideology. Um, the the challenge is that is that. These groups are empowered by the by the very same technologies and the very same platforms, whether they be Twitter or Facebook, or their ability to act and in, to behave under the cloak of encryption. They're, they're empowered by the very same things that empower all sorts of what we think of as positive. Behavior in this space. So people use Twitter for obviously for all sorts of positive reasons. People use encryption for all sorts of positive reasons. Our our entire bank, international online finance system is based on on the security provided by encryption. So the the very same tools that this network of ISIS or whoever they may be are using these what we perceive as negative actors is also empowering all these positive ones. So the things that a government would have to do at their level would have to be things like. Forcing Twitter to close down accounts of anonymous users, or forcing Twitter to, or to shut down accounts in a, on a continually rolling basis of all these different these accounts that are popping up that are propagating this this, this propaganda, and and that gets us into this pretty question questionable territory right the, um twitter would argue that well we're a f- we're a free and open platform and we're used by all sorts of people and sometimes people there's lots of benefits for people using our platform anonymously um so it it really puts the state in this in this difficult position um whereas anonymous on the other hand can and very, very quickly and very discreetly um, take down accounts as they pop up or be embedded in, in the networks and, and, and take them down as they're emerging. And so they, they, I don't want to oversell how effective they've been, but there's definitely been cases where they have, they've acted very effectively in ways that states might be a little bit more encumbered to do so.
0: So the suggestion has been made, you point out, that uh, you know, the U.S. could employ Anonymous or partner with them, even pay them in Bitcoin.
1: Right, I mean so that's so this is a, I mean, there's a long history of 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 governments supporting um, organizations they might otherwise find distasteful or problematic in order to to defeat a common enemy um, I, I I would make the case though that they won't do this with anonymous, and I think partly because anonymous represents something um, bigger than just. A uh, a group, a violent group, or an army that we might want to partner with in the short term in order to defeat a common enemy, and and it goes back to what you're talking about about the very power structure that Anonymous represents. And I think the very fact that we can't really know them that that it's incredibly quickly, it's quick to evolve. It it can do all sorts of things and it is doing all sorts of things that states and institutions find problem, fundamentally problematic and a fundamental threat to to the way they're structured um I think means that the state will be very reluctant to in, engage in this way with them um in a way in a way that's different than with past um armed groups or past armies which we've engaged with. Um, and we—I don't think we've seen. I mean, they may be. It's just we don't—we don't know a lot about what the government's doing in this space. So they, it's possible they are, um, but I, I suspect that that's sort of a bridge too far in this. Hmm.
0: And and it it sort of is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? We we've heard, you know, the President of Egypt shut down the internet, and so from our perspective, the heroes are the these these groups that uh, turned it back on. In a in essence, you know, a spit and bailing hmm. wire. Um, hmm. And it, but it's just it just depends on who's who's acting. But as you point out, the it's best I guess if the rules are the same for all.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it. And uh, the the rules but all, but also the capabilities. Um and and one of the things you're starting to see is is the capabilities of um of both again, positive or negative actors in in the online world. Um, being somewhat similar, um, but also the capabilities of what we would sit, call sort of demo, legitimate democratic states and autocratic states being quite similar as well, both both in in method, um, but also in technology. There's um, a significant amount of common tech surveillance technology um, used by both autocratic and democratic countries. And these technologies are often um, produced in in Western Countries um, and sold in um, in large surveillance trade fairs around the world, which happen quite regularly, and and so we, ha- we so in this bizarre sort of way, we have um, governments and established both corporate, state, democratic, and autocratic actors using similar technologies and methods um, against both what we would think of as po- positive or democratic or, or um, uh, beneficial. Network doctors and and what we would call negative nefarious ones. So, so you're getting this, which which I think further demonstrates that we have this power struggle struggle going on um, between established hierarchical institutions and networked groups and individuals.
0: Mm. What do you make of, uh, of North Korea apparently hacking into? Uh, I can't remember which film company it
1: was. Sony. Yeah. Uh, Sony. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting that we're we made such a big deal of it to be honest um i mean they say it was one of the larger corporate um hacks and leaks in history um i mean it probably tells us something about the nature of these types of corporations and these institutions i mean sony is is by all accounts a, a large hierarchical 20th century institution that um, thought it could operate with a degree of secrecy and degree of anonymity, and that proved just not to be the case. So it's probably tells something, and it ended up being in these hierarchical institutions. When you, when you reveal this can be, when you reveal some of these the ways they function, it can be incredibly damaging, and that's probably part of what we've seen. But I, but I do, I did at the time find it a bit ironic that we're focused so much on these sort of salacious Hollywood leaks, and and not very much, not as much on the the ways governments are, are using these um, these same hacking tools and these same surveillance tools um, against both corporations and citizens and also other governments. Um, one, one other aspect of this that that didn't get talked about a lot. Is, so this is the case of so North Korea we have we've known has this relatively um, sophisticated hacking capability, um, and in this case there was there were calls for the government to. To fight back in various ways, and I think we saw that that happened for the U.S. government to, to defend Sony in certain ways and um, and fight back against this North Korean capability. But I think we're increasingly heading into a space where corporations will be fighting back themselves. I mean, it's, if if a if a large company like um, Google with just this tremendous technological capability were um, attacked in a similar way i 'm not sure they' necessarily just be looking to the government to push back for them. We may end up in a space where corporations are actually fighting cyber wars on their own behalf outside of the state state capacity yeah. and, that, and that that puts us into a to a very different world of conflict
0: I wonder if we could uh, get to some You know, suggested solutions. Now you talked about an imbalance of accountability as governments move into this realm. And you've just talked about corporations uh, jumping in, I guess, with increasing effectiveness. And then these these collectives like anonymous. how, How do we how do we restore that accountability balance?
1: Well, I, to me, I think this is a, a huge question that we're just sort of in the beginning of the early stages of of figuring out and talking about how to how to engage with. To me, there's a there's a couple of entry points. I mean, one is the domestic governance entry point, which which you mentioned around um, algorithmic governance and more and more decisions about our lives being made by by machines. And, and what does it mean to hold these machines to account and these automated systems to account? Um, in in um, our current system of governance, uh, we place a huge amount of accountability in, in individuals. We can't, we can't know necessarily what made the, that all the inputs that went into an individual making a decision, um, whether it be to arrest some police officer to arrest somebody or a government to go to war or a bomber to bomb somebody. Um, we can't know all of the inputs to that decision, so we hold we that individual to account instead in the case of an algorithm, I'm not sure we know who or what to hold to account? Um, do we hold the original programmer who designed the code? Um, do we hold the in, the department in which that code was deployed? Um, who do, who do we hold to account there? And there's, there's there's some interesting work going on about trying to unpack the meaning and the power in these algorithms and figuring out who and what in in their operation should be the point of accountability um, in these decision-making uh, processes that are that are driving um, the. The other point in is, the, is the inter, in the international system, um, we've built an international um, legal regime, um, international governance regime, um, whether it be through um, international law or through the United Nations um, or uh, treaties and trade regimes, that is based on states being the primary unit in the international system. And have both having being the primary exerciser of power um, but also being the most legitimate actor the the actor that can most represent um, collectives of individuals and and so that's why we have the international architecture that we have that's why states represent us as citizens inside these institutions. Um, but if, if it's the case, and, and this is certainly up for debate, that power is essentially being, de- is, is being decentralized in some important ways, that individuals have more and more um, both power and say over their, their, their lives in some important ways, um, then what does it mean to – and the new actors are, 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 are gaining real authority and power inside this digital space. Um, what does it mean for these international institutions to include these new groups? Um, and and i don 't think we have a we have a great way of getting uh, getting into that conversation there's been some some interesting cases in in Europe with the pirate party sort of being a an institutionalized version of one of these decentralized networks and they're trying to bring in some of their thinking and their processes into sort of formal democratic institutions and I think we're seeing some interesting experimentation there um but it's but it's pretty early early stages
0: the that <laughs> There's a pirate party. What? I've, yeah, the pirate party. This. I mean,
1: it's, I think it's the, the has the second most seats in the Icelandic Iceland, Parliament. Oh, really? Um, yeah, they're, they're, they have seats in the EU, um, and it, it's actually quite a serious institution. They, mm. they emerge though from a, a pure online culture, and they they have a concept called liquid democracy, which is kind of a um, a constantly evolving form of direct democracy that's um, all, all all online so members of the, of the party can constantly be engaged with the the actions of the of the leadership hmm. um, so it, it's an early experiment but it's actually gaining some some real authority in some interesting ways so I'm, so, I'm, so i think these are like these are very early stages hmm. of this but be, the real question is what does it mean to bring these new forms of engagement um, An organization and governance into our traditional institutions? Are they capable Mm -hmm. of of coexisting? And I'm not sure we know the answer
0: to that yet. Yeah, I see. It's kind of an adaptation, moving new ideas in. I was just thinking, you know, I'm having trouble wrapping my mind around a pirate pirate party, for example, in Iceland who would Mm. maybe win an election and then have to govern. And I guess that would illustrate (laughs) some issues of bringing these ideas all the way in.
1: Definitely, definitely, and I don't think we're there yet. I mean interestingly, we we're mostly seeing these parties emerge in places with forms of proportional representation where we don't, we're not yet at the case where they they're, they're governing on their own. Um, it's more been how they operate as a party themselves that's where the governance experiment is happening as opposed to a governance governing a society. Um, and, and so I, I, but that maybe that's a, it's a bit of a Trojan horse and it's an experiment place where these types of new, new forms of democracy can, can emerge.
0: Let's take another break. When we come back more with Taylor Owen, his book is Disruptive Power, the Crisis of the State in the Digital Age. When we come back, I want to get into, uh, the chapter that's, that's uh, called Violence of Algorithms, where... Uh, uh, Professor Owen gets into automated warfare, the line between peacetime behavior and war. Also, journalism. So a lot of interesting uh, ramifications in our digital world for journalism, including, as Professor Owen uh, wrote recently, virtual reality in journalism. We'll talk about that following the break. Ah, Silicon Valley, hotbed of innovation and product launches and conferences.
2: It could be easy for entrepreneurs to get lost into going to conferences and networking instead of focusing on their product and how to make that better.
0: I'm Kyle Rizdahl. Some people get to have all the fun. Not next time on Marketplace from 8 p.m.
2: Join us tonight at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible by our members and the Basin Nickel Ads, a community resource for classified and display advertising, direct mailed to every home in the Uinta Basin. Including obituaries and birth announcements, information can be found through the Basin Nickel phone app. And the Utah Shakespeare Festival, featuring Henry IV Part Two, in the Outdoor Shakespeare Theater as part of the festival experience. More information at bard.org.
0: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We are talking about uh, effects in many areas of our lives of the digital age. The book is Disruptive Power, the Crisis of the State in the Digital Age. And We have with us uh, for another 10 minutes or so uh, Taylor Owen, Assistant Professor of Digital Media and Global Affairs at the Graduate School of Journalism, uh, Liu Institute for Global Issues at University of British Columbia. He's a Senior Fellow at Columbia Journalism School and was previously research director at the, the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia School of Journalism. Uh, Taylor Owen is, is author of the book Disruptive uh, Power. I wanted to get into journalism now. You uh, you have a chapter called Being There. Uh, I wonder, if, as you do in the book, if you would juxtapose uh, the, 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 the tragic death of uh, war correspondent Marie Colvin, with the digital tools that Syrian citizens are using to document the the war,
1: yeah, I mean, I was, I guess, I was struck at, the, like many people, I was um, watching the um, the Arab Spring unfold online through Twitter, mostly, from my perspective, but um, and getting this very, very visceral. Images, these visceral images and videos of what was going on. But there was a particular moment that, that really struck me, which is um, this very seasoned war correspondent named Mary Colvin, who is, couldn't be more of an archetype of a, of a foreign correspondent. She'd been in most of the conflicts of the last 20 years. And uh, when the, the Syrian government, when Assad was bombing the, the city of Homs, which was just this unbelievably barbaric um, bombing of this city, and total destruction of the city, she, she was the only Western journalist to go in, and she went in a couple of times right during the bombing campaign. And, and before going in, the, 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 what ended up being the final time she entered the city, she snuck into the city. She said that uh, if, if I'm not there, um, um, the world won't know this happened. Um, someone needs to bear witness to this, and this is the the core tenet of of war correspond- of war correspondence right is that the primary role of of the journalist is to bear witness um, and to and, to, and to, to bear witness on behalf of of people outside of of the con- direct context um, so she went in and she sn- she snuck into the city with a, with a her french photographer and uh, and she was killed. Um, uh, in in one of these bombing attacks, yeah, in some interesting circumstances, which we can talk about separately, but but what struck me is that that in many ways um, this was the first uh, war crime or or significant um, act of violence that was that was live streamed by the people experiencing it directly from their phones to YouTube. So. Um, w- there were these remarkable videos coming out at the same time as Mary Colvin was producing these, these, these amazing traditional foreign correspondent packages for broadcast news. You had people on tops of buildings and in windows who were recording these atrocities and and posting them online directly. And so, and uh, yeah.
0: I was just saying that's amazing. Uh, Where I I think that's a, you know, that's a, that's a positive that uh, people on the ground are, are are you know sending. You know, Informing us, but I wonder: Do we lose something with without the filter of, you know, the traditional organizations?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's that's the question we now have to ask. So we now have access. So purely bearing witness or witnessing an event occurring um, is no longer the only thing that the traditional foreign correspondent or the traditional international news organizations provide. So we we need to think beyond that, right? So what other things? Are, do, do these organizations and do this form of reporting provide? And to me, it's it's things like bringing context, bringing um, connecting um, a, an event to a to a, a, a context and, a, and an audience somewhere else. I mean, these, these things are all important. But then, but then the question to me becomes: Is who are the best people to do this? I mean, do. Is it the person who has jumped from conflict to conflict to conflict? Is that the person that is the most, most equipped to interpret and explain a conflict as it's unfolding um, to an international audience? And it might be. That person might have an expertise in, in, in how these conflicts have unfolded. They, they might be very worldly. They might be willing to take the risk to be there. Um, but maybe there's other types of people that should, should be, be those interpreters for us. And maybe the, some, of those, some of that interpretation and that providing meaning to this flow of information doesn't actually need to be on the ground um, in the middle of the conflict. Sometimes these these the, and we're seeing that in these in in the digital world is that you're getting a whole host of experts who are engaging with these flows of information and providing meaning to to them. Um, and, and we're not, it's not very organized yet. I think it's still very ad hoc and decentralized. But um, if I were looking for new points in which to add context, I, I'm not sure I would necessarily be sending um, people who. Who look and speak like us to be the translators on the ground, um, and rather look for expertise that can bring meaning to this collective of information that's coming out of these contacts.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I was just going to ask you how you how you put it in context. You so what form would that take? Who would, who would you turn to? Do you think?
1: Well, you know, I mean, you had this interesting case in um, during the Arab Spring that's it's become quite well known of a, a journalist named Andy Carvin at NPR who um, essentially uh, became a a filter for these huge flows of Twitter um, and Facebook and YouTube content that was coming out of these conflict zones. And he he built a network of experts and people on the ground who could corroborate and fact check these data, the, the the data and the information that was coming out. And when he reposted it through his feed, that was a sign that this has sort of gone through a traditional editorial filter of some sort. So he emerged as this node of, of context and meaning making on top of this, this flow of information. I think that's one model that's emerging. I think it's it's also um expert, experts emerging on ad hoc basis as um as a conflict is unfolding um who who step in and become interpreters um for the information that's coming out and the way the conflict's unfolding and I, but again we i don't think we have a great way yet of of bringing these voices to a mass broadcast audience in the way these traditional institutions were very capable of doing I mean that was the real power of traditional insti- broadcast institutions as they reach large audiences um, and, and so, so again there's a sort of mismatch between the, the traditional ways we've reached audience and the new capabilities in the digital space um, but but I'm not sure the answer is is to double down on, on the traditional way of doing international reporting
0: hmm. I want to have you talk about uh Advances in virtual reality and, and connect that yeah. to journalism. It seems like uh, you know. Anytime you talk digital and new technology, there's a big cool or it's a wow factor. There's <laughs> there's um, you know great new things with with attendant potential problems. So how do, so what what are what are the coming advances in virtual reality? First of all,
1: yeah. So I I began working in the virtual reality space when I was I was at. Colombia, and we we're experimenting with new technologies and trying to figure out what their meaning their meaning might be for for journalism. And we've actually just produced a, a virtual reality documentary with Frontline um, on the Ebola outbreak, where we we sent these new 360 3D cameras that create these um, live or live motion recordings of three of the Whole 360, and also in 3D, so you can use them inside um, new virtual reality headsets like the Oculus Rift and Google Cardboard and these sorts of things um, to immerse someone in a story. And and I, to me, I think that it's it's potentially very powerful. Um, if if the goal of of journalism is to um, expose one or immerse one in the lives of others in a way that they otherwise wouldn't um, experience. Um, there's a, there's a real potential power of actually putting you in the perspective of that person and you've seen some some quite powerful um uh journalistic or documentary like um, uses of of the technology already in its first it's only been around for about a year now um, uh, so there's a the u n for example produced a um quite a powerful virtual reality piece where you're taken around a, a Syrian refugee camp by a young girl who works there. And you're you're guided around this camp um, by, by, by this this little girl, and it, it's really quite powerful because you you in very very real ways you feel like you're there. Um, the risk, like you pointed out, is that um, it it because it pr- provides such a strong sense of immersion and a feeling like you're actually there. It 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 it. Um, it it creates an even greater responsibility on the journalist creating it or the documentary making it to to have this be an accurate, accurate reflection of what one would actually experience if they were there because the connection is so visceral for the user. There's also potential whole use of, of misuse, potentially misuses of this technology as well. Mm. But, I, but I think that it could be quite powerful.
0: Uh, now, uh, how does it work?
1: So the the way you capture the data is in these, these cameras that have 15 or so lenses that shoot off in all these different directions. Um, and as a documentary maker, you can just put it anywhere. Um, you could put it in the middle of a protest. You could put it in the middle of a conflict. You could put it in the middle of a refugee camp. You can put it on a drone, whatever it might be. And uh, that video is all stitched together, and it's inputted into a headset, like the, the the most well-known one is the Oculus Rift headset, which Facebook has recently purchased. Um, and in this headset, wherever you look, um, it, it, the video shifts, so it looks like you're, all, you're embedded in a scene. And it's, it's, it's actually quite powerful. It really does feel like, they call it, in the virtual reality world, they call it presence, feeling like you're mm. actually there. Yeah, wow. Um, and, and it's quite powerful with it. Uh, and people get quite emotional when they experience it mm. for the first time. Um, but it's not a consumer product yet. But in the next year, the, there will be a half a dozen or so headsets launched, and um, there'll be millions of them out in the wild. And so, it, it's a real experiment in what it means to create new content for for an entirely new platform and a new media.
0: And as you as you wrote recently in an article, <laughs> this is unfortunately human nature. Along with very noble uses of this technology, undoubtedly you'll have people sitting courtside at basketball games viewing porn. In, in 3D, yep. you know, that's, that's and, and those are all the people
1: who are funding this, right? So yeah. it's the gaming industry, sports industry, the movie industry who are funding most of the the development in this space. Mm-hmm. So what we've been trying to do is 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 have a journalistic focused conversation on the side of all this technological mm-hmm. advancement and say, okay, like we know this is going to be used for all these other um, more entertainment driven uses, but what what does it mean to place someone inside an event as it's happening as if, and have them feel like they're there? What does that mean for journalism? That's always been the goal of journalism. That's the goal of long-form written journalism. That was the form of photography. That was the, the point of, of vid- live cable video when it first emerged, was getting us closer and closer to actually feeling like we were there. Um, now being able to immerse someone in this virtual environment could, could be potentially really powerful.
0: We have an email that's come in. I'll uh, read this, and we'll have to uh, be uh, brief in, in response uh, to it. We're yeah, reaching sure. the end of time. Uh, this is Steve. He says, The impression I get from your conversation this morning is that your guest views the enormously intrusive data collection practices of governments as a reaction to the power and actions of formless independent groups such as Anonymous or WikiLeaks. I wonder, though, if these are not separate and independent phenomena whose linkage is simply the technology which enables them both. In other words, even if there were no Anonymous or WikiLeaks or any other such independent actors, wouldn't governments all the same? be acting as they do spying on citizenry. He goes on to say, it's not a reaction to anonymous or WikiLeaks, but rather an unfortunate entrenched reflex of government bureaucracies, especially police and surveillance institutions, to resist transparency and at the same time spy on the citizenry. And modern technology has simply amped up their surveillance and collections powers. For example, local police departments across the country use license plates readers to vacuum up huge amounts of information on our comings and goings for no other reason than to simply, because they can, though they will concoct bogus rationalizations for doing so. The NSA did not start up spying in reaction to Edward Snowden's revelations. Edward Snowden's revelations revealed something well-entrenched that had been going on for a long time. That's uh, Steve's uh, Yeah, that's
1: a a great comment, and I actually uh, agree with it almost fully. I mean, I think there's a case you can make that this would have happened... This increased power and data collection of governments is just a part of a continuum, and it's a it's a seizing of an opportunity that technolo- technology um, allowed. Um, I I'd, I'd, I would probably make the case though that there's something something a little bit deeper going on about there the level of the the anxiety and concern in how they're going to be structured and how these governments are going to govern um, in this digital space that ties them. To these emerging capabilities, whether it be anonymous or whether it be um, just citizens engaged in, in, in every aspect of of the spaces in which governments operate, and to me there there's some uh, again it's 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 a theoretical connection. I don't think we have a literal one, but um, I do think you can make a case that the governments are concerned enough. About the capability of actors in this space that at least that's in part justifying the extent um and the aggressiveness of their pushback and 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 sense of desire for control in this digital world well
0: we're uh, at the end of the program. the book is disruptive Power: The Crisis of the State in the Digital age. The author is Taylor Owen, and uh, much more of course to read we we uh announced that we would talk about automated warfare. You'll have to read the book uh, for that Taylor Owen a pleasure, thank you so much
1: thanks so much for the opportunity. talk to you soon.
0: And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. hope you join me tomorrow.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Best Western Dinosaur Inn, 251 East Main Street in Vernal, offering an outdoor pool, Wi-Fi, and on-site restaurant, half a block from the, Na- from the Natural History Museum and Western Park, close to the Dinosaur National Monument. Details at bestwestern.com.